Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, Pulitzer Prize-winning author and journalist Bob Woodward visits Minnesota, the Salvation Army Red Kettle Campaign, and Lindsay Whalen is honored in her hometown high school. But first... It's no surprise that the 2020 presidential race is already on some Minnesotans' mind, not even a month past the 2018 election. And state lawmakers are getting ready for the 2019 legislative session, which begins in just under a month. MNN's Bill Werner joins us for a status check. I suppose we better start with presidential politics, Bill. Well, I guess that does seem to be unavoidable, Scott. Senator Amy Klobuchar's appearance last Sunday on ABC's This Week And a question about whether she will run for president in 2020 sparked a lot of speculation this week in Minnesota and elsewhere. Right now, I am just still um, thinking about this, talking to people. I'm sorry to say I have no announcement for you on your show. Uh, And I actually learned this from my Senate race once when I first uh, was considering running for the Senate and told someone that on the radio. And that was how my husband found out about it. And since he is watching today, I'm not going to repeat that again. Hamlin University political analyst David Schultz says right now he would put Klobuchar in the second or third tier of possible presidential candidates. Top tier are still the rumors around, let's say, Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden and maybe an Elizabeth Warren. Then you get down to, what, the second tier of Kamala Harris, the the Cory Bookers, uh, Christine Gillibrand. You know, she's probably somewhere in that second tier. Schultz notes, despite some national attention of late, Klobuchar is not a household name. Recent appearances, you know, at the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings for Brett Kavanaugh or on ABC recently helped that a little bit. But she really has to figure out how to raise her profile and do that pretty rapidly. Also this week, over two dozen members of Governor-elect Tim Walls and Lieutenant Governor-elect Peggy Flanagan's Transition Advisory Board sat down for the first time around the big semicircular table in Committee Room 15, just below the state capitol rotunda. Flanagan, who is chairing that panel, welcomed participants from wide-ranging backgrounds, elected officials, business owners, farm leaders, advocates, environmentalists, labor leaders, and others. Over the next six weeks, uh, we get to uh, build on a solid foundation, uh, but we get to build a vision for the way that we want to move forward together and govern uh, as as, uh, one Minnesota. Um, That's something that uh, Governor-elect and I talked about a lot on the campaign trail, um, but we also believe that now is that time to put this into practice and into action. And all of you being here uh, is is uh, a step in, in that direction. Um, we know that we've got people from all across uh, the state who are here from different communities, um, different uh, kinds of uh, perspectives, and we are just so grateful for your willingness to help us build on that one minute, that vision for one Minnesota and our shared future uh, together. So thank you for giving of yourself and of your time. Um, when we decided uh, to, to do this and to put this together, we really wanted to make sure that it was an expression of our vision and of our values. We said consistently that we believe that people who are directly affected by uh, policy should have a seat at the table. And uh, we would like to think that this transition advisory board um, is literally uh, people being at the table, that this was that first expression of that where we all can come together. Lieutenant Governor-elect Peggy Flanagan. 
Education Minnesota Teachers Union President Denise Speck is among the members of the Transition Advisory Board. Every door I knocked and every phone I um, picked up, you know, people want to talk about public education. So I'm certainly hoping it's at the heart of the discussion. Jelani Hussein with the Council on American Islamic Relations Minnesota also on that advisory panel. We want to see the communities um, smartest and brightest uh, have the same amount of opportunity to lead the state and, and, and show that this community is not only part of the state, but also the part that's going to help grow it. Hussein says he's very encouraged because it's the first time a governor-elect has called together such an advisory board. And the governor-elect and lieutenant governor are right in the middle of a five-day statewide listening tour with two dozen stops. They started Thursday morning on Walls' home turf in Mankato, where the focus was increasing the effectiveness of state agencies. Because this truly is, when it comes to governance, um, this is about service to constituent service to consumers. Representative Jack Considine suggested splitting the state human services department into two agencies. DHS covers everything from the security hospital to daycare. And as a state representative on occasions, I had trouble finding the person that I wanted. Minnesota State University Mankato President Richard Davenport suggested recreating the state education commissioner position. To bring together the different systems of higher ed, University of Minnesota system, the mid-state system, the private colleges. Minnesota Transportation Alliance President Vance Sternberg advocated for increased transportation funding, telling the governor-elect... If you want one Minnesota transportation feels that because there is no Republican or Democrat roads, uh, we, have, we have an $800 million shortage every year. Minnesota is again in the top spot after the state canvassing board this week officially certified the results of the November 6th election. State Elections Director Gary Poser says just over 74% of registered voters turned out and over 64% of eligible voters actually voted. That's the highest percentage in a non-presidential election since 2002. I proudly say that that places Minnesota as number one in voter turnout nationwide uh, over all of the states. Uh, regaining our position. <laughs> Thank you. Chiming in there, and obviously pleased Secretary of State Steve Simon. He says although Minnesota does lead the nation in voter participation, there is still much more to be done to make democracy meaningful and accessible for everyone. Minnesota lawmakers anxiously awaiting the next state economic forecast, which comes out on Wednesday. Democratic Representative Lyndon Carlson, incoming chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, predicts for the next biennium there will be a significant budget surplus, probably, he thinks, better part of a billion dollars. But Carlson notes the currently healthy economy. Part of that is the uh, federal tax cut. But if you've been following the news and the business pages and so on, uh, it's fairly clear that that was a temporary bump. Carlson says a lot of economists are predicting growth will slow before too long. Whether Minnesota goes from a string of budget surpluses back to a budget deficit could well hinge on what the legislature does or does not do during the 2019 session. Scott? Thank you, Bill. More Minnesota Matters after this. We asked kids what it took to be a dad. This is what they had to say. A father is always present. I mean, what, father, what real father figure can you have if they're not there? In order to be a good dad, you need to love, love your son. You need to put gas in your car so you don't break down in the middle of nowhere. And you need to make them breakfast. Yep. 
I mean, just to maybe um, play like a board game with me or to just stay home and play um, some video games with me. Just to do like that one little thing is what I really look forward to. I'm not asking him to be a perfect dad, but he should try. He's just a constant force in my life. There's no other type of love like a dad's love because it's not comparable to anything else. Take time to be a dad today. Call 877-4DAD411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Bob Woodward has been in the public eye for around a half a century and is an author of more than a dozen best-selling books, including All the President's Men and this year's Fear, Trump and the White House. Woodward is visiting the State Theater in Minnesota this week, and I recently chatted with him about the book, The President, and much more. There are, of course, any number of angles you could have taken with the book, and I'm curious what your objective in writing the book was, and and did it change as you were writing it? Uh, It did not. I really saw, you can focus on his untruthful statements, and that's part of the story, but not enough. The Mueller investigation, special counsel inquiry into Russian meddling in the election and whether... Trump or his associates were involved in colluding or coordinating that is a very serious, very important story. I uh, did not find out new information about it, but uh, what he does as president is key, and I've written now books about nine presidents, and in the national security war area is very important and all of the domestic issues very important so uh, some of this was covered but not the real behind the scenes meaty debate that I was able uh, to get detail on and take people to uh, discussions and you can see the rationale and you can see where Trump will just close his mind on things you'll see is a closest aides will say, where'd you get that idea? Well, I've had it for 30 years. Uh, and if you disagree with me, you're wrong. The book is called Fear, and several times in the book, the phrase or variations of the phrase, fear is power, is repeated. So I'm curious, why was that concept so significant to you in your reporting and, and writing of the book? It comes out of uh, Trump's own mouth. Uh, two and a half years ago when uh, I and another reporter interviewed him. He was just on the verge of getting the Republican nomination. This is uh, the spring of 2016. And uh, we asked him about power, because the presidency is about power. And Obama had said some things about power and that real power comes from not having to use violence. That's what uh, Obama said. And finally, it was, it was a moment, it was almost Shakespearean, like Hamlet turning in a famous aside to the audience and saying, this is what's really going on. This is what's happening. And Trump did that and, and said, real power is, I don't even like to use the word, real power is fear. And it struck me there was something about he was speaking when he said, I, I don't want to use the word, but then he did, classic Trump, and uh, 
you look at what he does, and he, he scares the daylights out of people, not just uh, in the world or in the United States, but his staff, and says things and proposes things. They have to steal uh, documents off his res- the resolute desk in the Oval Office to keep him from doing some of these uh, impulsive things that would really jeopardize the country and trade and security agreements and top-secret intelligence partnerships. Clearly, you've been in Washington a long time. You've covered a lot of administrations, uh, including the Richard Nixon administration. And I'm, I'm wondering if Trump is, as he's portrayed in the book and as you've described him here in our conversation, which... Uh, I would characterize him as uh, described as stubborn, short attention span, a liar, a potential danger to the country. Why do you think more people close to him and in his administration haven't come forward to to share that message as they did in, in some cases with you for your book? Well, in lots of cases they did with me across the national security field, across the trade and economic area, you, you really see how he operates and to be quite honest with you, I found out by, I told President Trump this in August when he called, President Trump called me to complain that I hadn't interviewed him. And I said, there are all these times I tried to, to get to you through people close to you. He finally acknowledged that. But I said to him explicitly, you have, I couldn't get answers to the real question of what was going on by going to the White House. I had to go to people's homes, and quite honestly, I'd become lazy and not done enough of that in recent reporting. So I was refocused on really, there's something about somebody's home where I think, generally speaking, they'll be more honest. What was the most surprising thing that you discovered about Donald Trump as you were writing and researching the book? Overall, the people closest to him are the ones who are the most alarmed by his behavior. Uh, Second, that in the national security area, he's got some ideas that we shouldn't spend money on joint defense agreements uh, like uh, NATO or the South uh, Korean agreement. We have 28,000 troops there or in the Middle East, and he's harps on the how expensive this is so we're being at national security council meetings we're being played uh, for suckers we could be so rich if we were not smart and the generals and the secretary of defense just say no no those are the best dollars we spend and these are for joint agreements the money we spend in nato isn't just to protect NATO countries in Europe, it's to protect the United States. And finally, Trump goes on so long about this and asks, you know, why are we spending this money? Uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis says to him one of the most uh, bracing things I've ever heard anyone tell a president. Well, we're doing this to prevent World War III. That the President of the United States has to be told that by the Secretary of Defense is stunning because a President, I am the work I've done, I've, I think seven or so of my 
19 books had been about wars, that the president's job, number one job, is to prevent World War III, to prevent the use of nuclear weapons. And this was an NSC meeting after Trump had been president for a year. It's not his first week on the job, and he still had, they still have to try to pound in these points. And there's a lot of evidence that he does not accept the arguments. Mr. Woodward, you've been very generous with your time, and I appreciate your time today. I've enjoyed it very much. Thank you, sir. Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Bob Woodward will be at the State Theater in Minneapolis Monday, December 3rd. For more information, you can visit hennepintheatertrust.org. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Another sign the holidays are here, the Salvation Army's Red Kettles. MNN's Tasha Radel has more. That's right, Scott. The 2018 Red Kettle campaign is underway all across Minnesota. Joining me now is Major Robert Dolliber with the Salvation Army. Major, can you tell us a little bit about this year's campaign goals? Yes, the collective Red Kettle campaign goal for the outstate Minnesota is about $2.3 million. This is a significant part of our fundraising budget for the whole year. And can you tell us a little bit about why this campaign is is so important? When we talk about this budget, does this really, I guess, help fund programs and services throughout the year? Well, first of all, it helps with our Christmas efforts. We had uh, Thanksgiving dinners throughout the state, and uh, then through Christmas we brought by toys and food and meals and other Christmas parties for underdeserved people. And uh, then throughout the year, we provide uh, services, uh, direct assistance, uh, food shelves, meals, uh, kids programming, after-school programming, summer day camps, and all that. And so we we certainly don't put the kettles out in July, although it's tempting to do that. But uh, this kettle, what we raise at Christmas time, uh, helps fund our programs throughout the year. And when we um, donate money, you know, in outstate Minnesota, does that stay in each community or is it divvied out? How does that work? Right. Well, about 82% of the money that is donated goes in direct service programs, and each community has their own goals. So the money that is raised locally stays locally. We serve in every zip code. So we have uh, about 12 what we call core community centers in outstate Minnesota, and then in the rural areas, we have service extension units that provide services in those communities. So when you donate in a particular community, your funds stay in that community. And now I hate being a, a pessimist, but worst case scenario, if these goals are met, what does that mean? Well, it, it would have to be a cutback in services either Christmas time or throughout the year, and we, we'd hate to see that happening when funds are so tight in other areas. There's not much possibility to make it up in other ways, so we hate to cut services. And, you know, it's one of my favorite times of the year seeing the Red Kettles because the volunteers are, you know, oftentimes dressed up, playing music, you know, having a really good time. And it's also a good time, I guess, to teach your kids about giving. I just remember my parents and grandparents doing that growing up. Uh, Do you hear stories like that, Major? Well, I started ringing bells actually when I was nine years old. My parents were officers, so I've been ringing over 50 years. I've been doing it in six states and two different countries. And uh, one of the things that I uh, really enjoy the most is uh, when the children come in. I was ringing bells uh, last week 
in Golden Valley, and uh, a mom and her child came up, and the child came and put some money in and started to go away. And I said, here, let me uh, have you ring the bell. And so she rang, and her mom took a picture, and it was just so exciting to see the, uh, the joy of giving passed on to the next generation. And when we talk about giving, if someone, you know, uh, doesn't, I guess, make it to a red kettle or see a red kettle, which I, I think is maybe unheard of, but they can also give online. Is that right? That's right, at the SalvationArmyNorth.org. Uh, also, one of the new features on our kettles this year, at least in the Twin Cities area, is the QR codes on our signs. So people who don't carry cash with them can, with their smartphone devices can uh, donate that way. Major Dolliber, can you, um, I guess, give us some history on how the kettles started? Uh, the uh, kettles started in 1891 in San Francisco. The captain was trying to uh, raise some money to feed a 1,000 people for a Christmas meal. And so he put a great big uh, pot, almost like a cauldron, down on the dock where the ferries go and, and was able to raise enough money for that. So now for 127 years, we've been ringing bells in the bell ringers are a very uh, visible part of our uh, outreach. Well, lots of good information. Was there anything else you wanted to share with the audience today? Well, there's some exciting things going in outstate. Uh, I know up in Duluth area, they partner with the Bentleyville Christmas Lights, and uh, they help raise money for Salvation Army programs and services in Duluth and the Iron Range. Uh, in Wilmer, we have the Celebration of Lights, which is a very popular thing that helps Salvation Army. Uh, I was in Rochester uh, earlier this week, and they've got a little competition on the advisory board between uh, Packers Kettle and a Vikings Kettle. So a lot of exciting things going on out there. For more information on the Red Kettle campaign, you can head to SalvationArmyNorth.org. You can also sign up there to be a volunteer bell ringer. Again, that address is SalvationArmyNorth.org. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Adopt U.S. Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting. Your daughter just had her first breakup. Do you A, put yourself in her shoes? How could he do this to you? And for Sheila, she, she has split ends. B, console her. Oh, sweetie, this is going to happen a lot. Four, maybe five more times before you get married. C, take charge. Got to get this all straightened out. Keep a little talking to, man to man, mano a mano. Hey, Steve. Is now a good time? No? Okay, no problem. Bye. Or D, help her find a new boyfriend. I know a great place to meet boys. The internet. Nice, single boys. Never mind. How about some ice cream? As a parent, there are no perfect answers. But you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Tuesday was a big night for Minnesota basketball legend Lindsey Whalen. The former Lynx and Gopher star player and current Gopher women's coach had the high school gymnasium in her hometown of Hutchinson named after her. Joel Niemeyer is sports director at our Hutchinson affiliate KDUZ and sat down with Whalen. Chatting with the uh, the woman of the hour, the woman of the night here as uh, Lindsey Whalen, kind enough to spend a few minutes with us here. First of all, congratulations. We're recording this before all the ceremonies here, so what does this honor, what does this night mean to you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just, um, it's obviously something that's, uh, you know, very humbling. And like you said, it's a huge honor to be, so many great athletes have, have played in, 
in that gym and have gone to this high school. So to be, uh, I guess, kind of a representative of that is pretty cool. And so I'm really um, just honored and, and happy to be home as well for a night to be able to watch, um, uh, you know, a little bit of basketball and just kind of be home here with my parents. So it should be fun. What was your reaction when you found out when you got that call or, or letter? What was uh, what was the reaction? Yeah, I mean, I was just uh, obviously surprised and just um, you never think when you're when you're working or you're playing growing up, you never think that these type of things are going to happen. And so it's just, um, yeah, I was just really surprised, but um, thankful for the for the opportunity, you know, the opportunity to come back here tonight, but then to be a part of, um, I guess, the school forever from from moving on, other than um, from graduating here and and whatnot, to be actually um, have the gym named after me is pretty cool. You've had a lot of memories playing over the years, many different teams, but specifically for Hutchinson, what are some of the memories of playing in in this gym or the old gym? Because since this is this is yeah. brand new. Yeah, this it, this is nice. It's a it's a great. Um, they've done a really good job. Um, probably my first game playing. Um, we played Glencoe. Um, first, so that was the first game playing and starting. And so just I remember uh, having a terrible warm up because I was so nervous. But then I actually. Um, you know, was able to make a few points, and I think we won the game. So uh, that and some, you know, some of the games with Holy Angels, some of the games with New Prague, just um, some really fun games that you look back on and, and, and just, um, you know, the crowds and um, the student section being supportive and the band and everything, all those things, uh, you know, your parents being able to come and watch, my brothers and sisters running all over the court. Um, <laughs> you know, those are some really fun memories for sure. Does it make this night a little special playing Annadale, playing the in-laws a little bit? Yeah, that's pretty cool. That, that's that's pretty fun how that worked out for tonight. Um, so um, Ben is going to be here, and then um, yeah, my my Dave and Sandy are going to come as well. So they probably would have come anyway to watch Annadale play. Um, but now it's just a little bit extra special for sure. We talked a little bit about uh, about Hutchinson here. Uh, let's talk about what you're doing now. As long as I was got thought got you on the radio here. How's the transition been to uh, going from player to coach now? Oh, it's been good. It's been, um, you know, really, um, it's been fun. I love it. I love um, being able to, um, you know, kind of, change, you know, um, affect our players' lives in a positive way, uh, hopefully, hopefully a positive way. But to be able to do that is pretty cool now and to be able to have a different kind of uh, spin on on the sport and everything has been, re- it's been really fun so far. I really, really enjoy it. Has it been maybe a little bit easier from the standpoint in, in, in that you know, usually when a coach's new coach comes in, it's because the old coach couldn't win or there wasn't players or things like that. That wasn't the case here. I mean, it was a pretty good team last year. So has that made it a little easier for you? Yeah, I mean, we had some really good players. So um, I think that having them having gone to the NCAA tournament, having that experience has been something that um, is exciting. And so to be able to take over a program with some talented players um, is, is, been, is exciting. And so now we just have to keep building and keep, keep bringing in, um, you know, players who we, who we feel fit our system best. And so uh, we'll continue to work at that. How about goals for the year? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I have to, you know, I have to, we have to go through this non-conference schedule and then into the Big Ten season. It's my first time, so it's really hard to say. But um, I know our team is, is is pretty fired up about getting back to the NCAA tournament. So I think uh, a strong finish in the Big Ten and, and making the, the tournament would be pretty cool for us. Sounds good. Congratulations. Thank you. That's Minnesota sports legend Lindsey Whalen and KDUZ sports director Joel Niemeyer of Hutchinson. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.